from Koenigstein Road in the east to Casitas Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, I'm Brett Bradigan, editor of Ojai's Magazines, the quarterly and monthly. Our guest this episode will be a familiar name to our readers. It's Chuck Graham, the naturalist, outdoorsman, and now author. A regular feature writer and photographer for the OQ, Chuck has recently published his first book, Carrizo Plain, which took him 15 years and very much patience to create. With its stunning photographs of wildlife like tule elk and pronghorn antelope, bound in this majestic national monument, just one hour north of Ojai. Hey, Chuck, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. So um, I saw you at the museum talking about your book. And I know you gave me a, an advanced copy, I think, a few months ago. And it's it's gorgeous, really. It's thanks. quite a great thanks a lot. job printing it, designing it. And it's the work of, what did you say, like 10 years you've been shooting for uh, this book? 15. 15 years. Yeah, first steps on the Carrizo plane were 2006. And... Uh, I've been going ever since, more and more over the years, and uh, it's 15 years of photography and wrapped up in 116 pages. Yeah, well, it's got this, the way that you set up a blind and just immerse yourself into the environment. It's got very much of that kind of old school, mutual of Omaha, Wild Kingdom kind of feel to it, where you are part of the landscape. So these ground squirrels or these antelope ground squirrels and these kit foxes and all the rest of that are just, they, they ignore you after a while, right? Um, yeah, and I haven't been using a blind. Um, I just, you know, I find a burrow, uh, find where they are, and then just kind of move in slowly, gradually, and then, you know, just, and then having to, you know, be patient and sit there for hours. Hours, I would imagine. Yeah. You've got to develop such a yeah. presence of mind and being in the moment all the time. It must be like some extreme meditation. It is definitely a, a meditating experience, like waiting for them to come out of their burrows. But there's other things going on around you, and uh, it's so quiet and peaceful out there. There's a lot of, a lot of solitude and a lot of time just to, you know, soak in and appreciate where you are and what you have yeah and and on your place in the in the cosmic order of things i would imagine yeah um it's you know the crease of plane such a special place there's yeah that's why i've been excited to have you on because i don't know how many people really appreciate how amazing this this backyard it's basically ohio's backyard it's an hour away yeah it is it's not far at all and um Usually when I talk to people in Ojai, they, they know where it is. Yeah. Um, other people, you know, outside of Ojai, they um, they don't know where it is. Even, you know, as close as Ventura or Santa Barbara. And, you know, I have to say, well, the first time I went there, I, I got lost on the way there. I didn't know where it was. Yeah. Um, well, I had a friend that's talking about her <clears throat> and her girlfriends went out for a scenic road trip and got lost on one of the back roads within the the park boundaries of the National Monument boundaries and had quite the adventure 
didn't know if they were ever going to find their way back out of there. <laughs> it's such a vastness. It's really, I've heard it described, and maybe it was by you, that it's the American Serengeti. It's been called that, yeah. Yeah. It's, it has that feel, definitely. Um, but, it, you know, it, unfortunately, it's not what it used to be. You know, it's you're standing out there and it's 250,000 acres of open, you know, wilderness. Um, but it's just a smidge of what it used to be, where it would, you know, actually stretch all the way up to, you know, towards Fresno. Well, uh, would you consider that part of the Great Central Valley or the San Joaquin Valley, or is it, it is its con- own? Yeah, it's considered like the, the last intact end part. Yeah, of that. yeah, yeah. So that whole ecosystem that dominated the center of the state is basically just whittled away until it's just this quarter million acres. Yeah, it's pretty sad when you're driving up the five and looking at what it used to, you know, knowing what it used to look like. Yeah. uh, Well, I don't know if you're familiar with that book, Cadillac Desert, but he talks a lot about the Central Valley River projects and the, the, the war between the Bureau of Reclamation and the Army Corps of Engineers. But damming up all those rivers and setting up basically subsidized water for all these right. industries. And right. it's an issue in Ohio because our citrus farmers can't compete with Bakersfield growers because they have free water, basically. Right. They're, they're, they pay like $40 an acre foot, which is basically doesn't even keep up with the maintenance on the canals and so forth. Right. And here it's like five, six, seven, eight, ten, twelve times more for the water. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's really, uh, I mean, as we're speaking, it's raining. It's been a lovely stretch of rain over yes, the past week or so. So great. I think we're well over half of our annual total now, 12 or 13 inches we picked up, which means in another, what, six weeks, a couple months, some things are going to be happening out there. Uh, I hope so. It, it, we're going to need more than this, though. It, it, it can't just be one month of rain. It's got to be a steady diet of rain through January through February before uh, we can start thinking or anticipating a possible bloom out there. Uh, Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. The last bloom you were talking about, this is that event and it was very captivating uh, with especially with your photos of these amazing flowers. And I'll, I'll try to post some up in the show notes so people get a, get a taste for it. It's like just, cans of paint just being splattered all it's over incredible. the place. It's incredible. When there's yeah. a full-on bloom, yeah, you don't have to go far to see flowers. Everything's there. Um, but when you're just kind of using your periphery and, and you got a pair of binoculars, uh, it's it's mind-blowing. Yeah. It, just to be in it. Now, when was the last one? Like 2019? 2019, was a- yeah. And then before that, there was one that was like a super bloom. 2017. So we've had a few here lately. Yeah, the, yeah. I was really amazed, surprised that we had another one in 2019. Because before 2017, the last one was 2010. Yeah, so, they're by no means guaranteed even to be every no. other year. So yeah, every other year, that's crazy uh, to think yeah. about. You know? And 2020 wasn't a, wasn't a super bloom, but there was still some really... Nice flowers out there. Yeah. Uh, and that actually ended up being the best wildlife year I've ever had out there. Is there so, a uh, correlation? Uh, I think all the rain we got 2017, 2019, um, 
you know, just carried over into 2020. We had, you know, we had a decent amount of rain, but that really, you know, helps wildlife. And yeah, uh, you, you can really see it uh, in the number of, you know, pups that the kid foxes have or the number of kits the antelope ground squirrels have or, mm. or all the, you know, fairy circles the giant kangaroo rats make, you know, out there uh, around their burrows. Um, so, you know, we got into 2021 and whew, I wasn't seeing much of anything and found a couple of dens, but uh, the number of pups of kit foxes were low from what I saw. Yeah. Um, so we'll see what happens here uh, in 2022. But you're, you feel somewhat optimistic. Uh, it's, I, you know, I, I, I've kept hearing and reading we were in a La Nina phase this winter and that we weren't yeah, going to get a lot of rain, out. but this is, um, you know, I felt like that in November for sure, but <clears throat> December has proven otherwise. And yeah. Hopefully we keep getting some, you know, rain in January. Steady, gentle, rain, yeah. soaking rains. Yeah. Yeah. Not the real hard stuff. I mean, there has yeah. been some hard stuff, but uh, at least it's been consistent here in December. Yeah. So uh, Carrizo Plain, now most of these distinct ecosystems revolve around one species or another. Mm. And I thought you were talking about the the uh, kangaroo rats. Yeah, or the, yeah, the giant kangaroo rat. That's the uh, linchpin of the yeah, ecosystem. No, it, you don't see them a lot. Um, they kind of come out right after dark and right before the sun comes up. Uh, but they're, the evidence of them, their, their burrows are all over the place out there. And that's, uh, you know, the animal that biologists keep an eye on the most because, uh, you know, I've had biologists tell me that so goes, you know, the giant kangaroo rat, so goes the Carrizo Plain. So, yeah. Um, and that's that, because the forage of the, that's because they're the main meals for the, yeah, I mean, for the hawks. Yeah. And the, they provide the foxes food for, you know, badgers and kit foxes and snakes and, um, you know, long tailed weasels. Love them. Um, uh, all the raptors, you know, all the owls, hawks. Of which falcons. there's many, right? I know you've uh, yeah. written for our magazine. Thank you. It's always oh, great you. to have your contributions yeah. in there oh, with all the beautiful it. photography. Thank you. This latest issue, you had all these gorgeous raptor photos, including you stalked a golden eagle to the mm. to that. What What is the name of that uh, peak or not mm. peak? But it doesn't some, have a name. Um, it's just a kind of a lonesome a cinder, cinder cone. cone. Yeah. yeah. Out there on the plane and... Uh, it's a, it's a picture of it I have in my book. I have a, a guy that I, I guide with out of the islands. He's a friend of mine, and I coaxed in him into standing out there on a really cold day. Uh, but, you know, the book is really so much of it is about perspective, and you really need something, a subject matter in there to yeah, really otherwise. appreciate the photos. Otherwise, you're just you would, really not sure what no, you're looking no, at. Yeah. Um, so I got him to go out there and stand there for about 90 minutes while I moved around behind him in the foothills of the Calientes. And, uh, and he's tall. He's like 6'3", so that helped too. But uh, that cinder cone, uh, later on, I, I was seeing uh, a golden eagle perched up there. Yeah, top. because they could see... 360 degrees. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, there's no obstructions at all. And they have, you know, laser vision. And uh, so I've seen it up there a couple of times, but they're a very uh, 
skittish bird. They yeah, they they're shy. Close. Yeah, they take. Off. I have seen in my life maybe three or four golden eagles. One I killed with my car. How <sighs> bummer. Yeah, in Oregon, coming down the Deschutes River, or coming back to Bend from a trip down to Deschutes, and he just swooped into a roadkill, and he just, like, filled up the windshield. Oh. It was just grotesque. Yeah. It made me so sad yeah. because it was a magnificent bird. They're so huge. Yeah, they're incredible. Yeah, they're scary yeah. big. Yeah, they're big, and they're strong, and they can take a small deer down. Uh, if they want so and uh, and I there's some story maybe it's just an urban legend a rural legend about a lady walking her dog on Shelf Road and a golden eagle snatched up her like Easily. eight pound Pekingese and whooped its way yeah. up about a hundred feet or so and then changed its mind and dropped the dog with its leash still on uh, it that's got, the story I heard I, I don't know, know if it actually happened I got a little dog and I had I had a golden eagle almost take uh, my pup out of the back of my truck out there on the cruise. Oh yeah, spot spotted. That happened to us. We were hiking up in Kern area in the the uh, Golden Eagle. We were on the ridge line, and the Golden Eagle was down in the down along the creek. So he's flying like eye level, and he's just like, we just know that if he'd had a chance to get that dog, he would have oh, yeah. got that dog. Oh yeah, not a tiny dog either. He's like twenty pounds or yeah. something. Yeah, they're strong birds. Yeah, they're probably the most amazing raptors around here, mm, I guess. I'd say so, other yeah. than a condor. Yeah, and speaking of which, you um, also write a lot about the condors. And I, I heard somewhere very interesting that condors are now breeding through parthenogenesis. Do you know what that is? Where they're not actually male-female coupling. The females are somehow fertilizing their own eggs and they're oh, having shoot. I have not heard that and I've been spending a lot of time with uh, the National uh, Wildlife Refuges yeah there. I don't want to yeah. say too much because I'm going to get it wrong but I do recall a startling news flash that they had discovered that our condors back here were breeding without sex basically <laughs> and I'm sure all the women in America are like what why can't we do that <laughs> No, but that that uh, you know the the stressors that the environments under create all kinds of anomalies like mm. that. Yeah, yeah. Now you heard about that wolf coming down from I Northern did. California. Yeah, sad. Yeah. Now, what do you know about that? I think he's traveled over five hundred miles since his, his most yeah. recorded sighting. Yeah, some uh, amazing amount of mileage and terrain. Uh, it'd be amazing if we had, you know, megafauna like that back here in the Yeah, in the I think that again. the ecosystems really are built around the apex predators. Yeah, but there's not enough corridors for animals like that. Mountain lions, wolves, bears. Um, you know, there's a, uh, a new... Uh, in Newberry Park, is yeah, that the one you're yeah, talking Liberty about? Yeah, Liberty Canyon, yeah. That's yeah, I heard happen. that that's just gonna, opened or is about to open. break ground here at the end of January. Yeah, this uh, lady uh, is a friend of a friend, and she's coming to Ojai to do a presentation oh, about nice. that. Yeah, that's... But uh, it's, like, really a big deal because yeah, all the Santa Susana Mountains and, yeah. uh, and the uh, everywhere, right? Like, even the southern tip of the Sierras and uh, Tehachapi's yeah. and everything else, it, well, it'd be nice to have one uh, from the Creso plane over the 166. 
Yeah, uh, and to have one up the Ventura River yeah. as well. There's yeah. that's a yeah. known to be a. a I think corridor. those are really important to have to yeah to stitch together the yeah. different habitats safely because that poor yes. wolf got killed by yeah. a car, right? Yeah, yeah, it needed a corridor. Yeah. But the fact that he was able to get down here, sometimes, you know, I when I was a young journalist, I used to interview Earth First, uh, Dave Foreman. Does that name ring mm-hmm. a bell? He was one of the founders of Earth First. And then Deep Ecology, that was like one of his subjects. But Dave Foreman, like, they had some jaguar sightings in southeast Arizona when I was there. In fact, a guy treed one with his uh, lion dogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he didn't kill it. He'd just take some photos. But the... Uh, you know, the premise, people saying, oh, look at how the ecology is improving, that mm. the jaguars are moving back into this habitat. And Dave Foreman is like, no, the habitat has gotten so much more worse in Mexico that this formerly uninhabitable habitat just seems, you know, acceptable by, by comparison. Right. The idea that the habitat is improving in any regard is, is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, which is part of the situation with this wolf, I believe. That yeah. He probably just had to keep moving because he couldn't find anywhere that no. he could set up shop. Well, and he, he didn't have any females. Yeah. You know? And looking around, he's going to be a lonely bachelor. Yeah. yeah. But wow, what a, um urge to, you know, discover. And yeah. Move. It tells you that if we were to figure out these wildlife corridors and all the rest of that, that these animals probably could flourish they probably they wouldn't take that long for them to rebound no, figure it out yeah but that was very interesting because this is like the last not the last grizzly bear that was in lake arrowhead or somewhere right in the san somewhere, bernardino mountains yeah. 1932 but some of the last grizzly bears were back in necessity yeah 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 in fact the grizzly bear on the state flag was captured in 1890 something by a reporter sent by, um, and a crew of locals by William Randolph Hearst is like a publicity stunt. And as the bear, Monarch was his name, he ended up on the California state flag, mm. the bear flag. Yeah. That's our backcountry, people. That's like right there in our backyard. It's this amazing wilderness. Yeah, it is. And there's a lot of uh, preserves and refuges, you know, around the National Forest. And yeah, it's a a great place to have all these corridors yeah. uh, so they can move freely. And really, one of the animals that needs it more than anything else is the pronghorn antelope. They need a lot of that open space. And when they come across roads, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's a boundary they don't want to cross. Yeah. So you could use another one out there off the 58, the 166, and then connect over to, uh, and then we could, they could connect over into the Windwolves Preserve. Um, oh, wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. It's, it just seems like something that should happen. Yeah, because there's, you know, millions of acres of prime habitat that's mm. isolated in discrete patches. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you also wrote about the bighorn sheep, which mm. fascinates me because it wasn't the take that they probably got wiped out. The re- reintroduced herd from the 60s of 30 animals or something yeah they came from the san gabriel mountains which was at the time doing well that was in the um, early to mid 80s and so those animals were trapped and then transported into the cespi by the uh hot springs 
area. So By Willet Hot Springs or uh, Sespe Hot Springs? Sespe Hot Springs. Yeah. Uh, real mountainous there. Good habitat, except for the habitat was overgrown at the time, which is not good for bighorn. They need, yeah, they need to see. Yeah, it gives a, it advantages the mountain lions. Correct. So, you know, we've had a lot of fires, and one of the uh, key fires for the bighorn was the day fire. Which was there. like 2006. 2006. Yeah, 2006. Going, yeah, somewhere I around remember. there. And uh, that really opened things up for them because their vision is what they rely on uh, more than anything else to, you know, you know, keep away from predators. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, when they were dropped there in the 80s, that, that wasn't the case. They weren't seeing well. Uh, radio collars went silent and they were pretty much given up on. But as over time, there were sightings by hikers, hunters. Yeah, there's uh, an outfitter back there too. Yeah, those Padres outfitters. Yeah. Um, so they were seeing, there was reports of sheep coming in and yeah, and myself, I got real curious just to see what maybe the numbers were like. And uh, a couple of occasions we saw, you know, close to 50 sheep, different small wow. bands. So you know, moving around. that's an increase over the transplanted yeah. herd. Yeah. yeah, so it's hard to say uh, how many animals are, are out there. I've, I have heard that it's around 100. Yeah. Um, and that some of those animals are moving north, northwest towards the Willet, you know, behind Willet campground area. Yeah. Um, Which is only really on the backside of the front range here, just like on the backside of right. the Topa Bluffs and that. It's not... No, I mean, it's close to Ohio. Yeah, I mean, as a crow flies, sure. it's only like ten miles or yeah, something. Yeah, it's not. It's not far. Yeah, uh, but the terrain is very you know, rugged. Anybody that's hiked up Ladybug Trail or tried to get up, uh, you know, the top uh, where Caesar Canyon is that? That's Ladybug Trail that crosses over there. Yeah, that's rugged country. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. for a bighorn, they're so nimble. Yeah, uh, they're incredible animals on the on the on the go. Yeah, I've seen YouTube videos of them hopping around on rocks, like nothing. young ones, like it's nothing, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's Thousand foot precipices, oh, yeah, and they're just sticking the yeah. landing easily. Wow, just amazing the adaptations that these creatures have made. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, um, just a little bit about yourself. You um, seem to me to be like one of that that breed of Kind of always wanting to see what's around the next bend, mm. kind of explore type. It's never that, enough. Yeah. And you, how many like nights in the last uh, year or so have you spent in a tent? Oh, shoot. Uh, well, being a guide out at the islands, I I do about 150 days a year on average. So, so more, about half the time, half of your time. I'd you're, say, yes. Wow. Yeah, because yeah, uh, uh, I have Rick Ridgeways coming on the oh, podcast nice. here. Oh, beautiful. He just came out with a new book, and he to- totaled it up that he was 15, or no, five years of his life in a tent. So you probably have him beat. Uh, I don't know. As he's, old, he's older than me, so he might be. Might be. He's still <laughs> stacking them up. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's good. But uh, you, where, where did you grow up, and how did you get your interest in uh, uh, the outdoors? I've lived in Carpinteria since... 1975, and my parents bought a beach house in Carpinteria then. And from where? Where, where were you? Uh, well, we came from Santa Barbara. We were there for a couple of years, but I was born in Santa Monica, and then we okay. moved up to Santa Barbara in '73. Uh, but before that, we always lived 
around the beach down in the South Bay area yeah. or the valley and we always went out to the beach on the weekend. So my dad liked to play volleyball down at Manhattan Beach. <clears throat> and um, once we moved to the beach in Carp in 75, we lived um, between the beach and the Carpinteria salt marsh. Yeah. So my backyard was in the mud and, you know, birds, frogs. The seal rookeries. Uh, yeah, that's down the down the beach a little bit, um, and then I started, you know, as time went on, I started lifeguarding on the beach in Carp. I actually still do. It's been this will be my thirtieth year. So that there. like finances your uh, expeditions? Um, well, yeah. After school, my parents were like, "Yeah, you don't have to you don't have to move if you don't want to. You can stay here." And I had the studio out back overlooking the marsh, and I was like. You know, where am I going to go from here? So I just, they said, you want to travel, travel. So I was traveling and, um, and I was lifeguarding and, you know, being on the beach, working in the tower, I was seeing the islands a lot and, you know, I wanted to spend more time out there and, and, uh, started paddling out there, uh, paddling out to the islands. Well, uh, you know, started just doing day trips with my kayak, but then I, Yes, I I have paddled to and from about eight times now. Wow, because that's 27, 28 miles. Depending on where you start and finish, roughly. Yeah, yeah. that's the average. Um, that seems like a very long day just to get out there. It's a long day. It's a little stressful in the shipping lanes. Um, <sighs> don't want to get stuck out there in the fog. Um, but the islands are they're incredible. Uh, they are like world it. class. There is yeah. nothing like them. The no. American, the American Galapagos. Yeah, now yeah, they've been called that, and that's that's fair. Uh, there's a lot of biodiversity out there that you can't see anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Um, so uh, I just started paddling around the islands, and uh, I've done lots of circumnavigations around the islands. Did you? Uh, were you involved with the uh, pig hunts and all that no. at that point? No. No, I'm glad the pigs are gone. But yeah, um, you didn't want to be the one. Yeah, I wrote a lot about that. Uh, I, 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 you know, I hear people say, "Well, how come we couldn't save the pigs?" And I, you know, I'm just like to myself, going, "Pigs or island foxes? What are we talking here?" I'd yeah, rather, I'd rather there's be some trade foxes. That's uh, been a yeah. way better uh, experience, a way better way to go. Yeah. Well, how did you get into the writing part, the journalism part of it? Uh, in school, uh, I was a history major. I went to City College, and then I eventually graduated from Westmont and uh, I was also studying journalism and uh, and then afterwards I really didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I was going to teach and uh, I'm glad I didn't go that route. Yeah. And, uh, and then I started taking a course. This is before the internet and all that. It was actually all through the mail. It was something called the Children's Institute for Literature. Mm. And so you get a teacher and you get these assignments and you'd mail it back to them and they critique it and they'd come back to you and say, this is what you got to do, blah, blah, blah. And then they showed me how to write proposals and approach editors. And I just took it from there and I just started, you know, sending out pitches and collecting rejection letters. And, and then I've got uh, a desk drawer full of those yeah, myself. Yeah. Um, but I, it's been a great way for me. Yeah. You know, because, um, it gives you a purpose to be out there, like yeah, I justify my your passion, and yeah, being outside. Being well, out. I think one of the things people don't realize about 
travel writing in specific, outdoor writing in general, is that you're out there having those experiences. You can package them up all kinds of different ways for different publications. Mm -hmm. So you can sell the same story numerous times. Yeah, there's stories within stories, you know, just all along the way. Yeah. So do you keep uh, close notes when you're out there, like journaling? And um, I, I, I mean, I have lots of notebooks, but, um, you know, <laughs> we're kind of spoiled out there now. Now we have, uh, where I work out there, we have internet and Wi-Fi, and I can, you know, get on, on your it. guiding trips. Uh, afterwards, yeah. 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 So I'm, I, I get a lot done out there now, uh, riding. Uh, but I always keep a notebook with yeah. me, always. Uh, you know, in the truck, in my backpack, my tent, because um, something will always pop into your head, you know? Yeah. And people think that, oh, well, I had an idea, I lost it, it's okay, I'll have uh, another one. No. Brutal. No, uh, you don't. No. You don't. No, you like, good ideas down. don't come along that often, yeah. people. Write that shit down. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the photography part, I mean, you're a great long lens photographer. I mean, really impressive. Thank you. Uh, how do you? How did you figure that out? Like, uh, because that's like you got to schlep a lot of gear around. Yeah, um, I started, you know, with the writing. I was a writer first, but I soon realized that I was going to have a much better chance getting published if I had photos as well. So, the and I can testify to that. Somebody comes in with a package of an excellent story and excellent photos. That's just really an editor's dream. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so uh, I, I didn't get into photography until '91, and uh, but the you know the idea of photography it came in 1985. So I used to surf competitively, and I was on the national team then, and uh, the national team always went on a, a, a overseas trip. The uh, Bali year. or somewhere. Uh, we were, we went, that year was South Africa. And so oh, we wow. went during the you know apartheid, which was another eye-opener. Yeah. Uh, so I was in Cape Town. I was staying with a family from the UK. And uh, you know, we were surfing a lot. I was surfing with their sons. And, and they were saying, well, look, you're not just going to surf while you're here. We're going to take you to some places and show you some things, and which was great. And they took me down to... I want to say it's the Cape of Good Hope down at the bottom of the continent. And uh, yeah. I don't know if I'm, that's correct. Well, is that South Africa? It's that's Cape Town, Cape of Good Hope, Cape of, Cape, Cape, the Horn. The Horn. Yeah. I think that, that is the Cape of Good Hope. Yeah, so. That's where the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean yeah, meet up with all there. the yeah. currents. And, and there's the, a lot of life there. A lot of rookeries of penguins and penguins, such. African penguins, there's. Cape Mountain Zebra, uh, wildebeest, baboons, and and you're just walking amongst all this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I just looked at it. It was just incredible. A lot of it, it reminds me of the Santa Barbara area. Uh, yeah, the grasslands yeah. and the oak uh, savanna. Yeah. 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 And I said, well, I'm going to, one of these days, I'm going to come back with a camera. And so I did in 91. And uh, I've been to Africa 15 times, I think, over the years. Wow. And, and then that... Always, uh, on, always on shooting, shooting no, safaris? No, I was uh, climbing mountains and surfing and paddling, rafting. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, of course, a lot of wildlife, a lot of culture, a lot of, you know, 
uh, different people, just amazing people. They still eat snook in uh, South Africa. Remember this like weird dried fish, like dried fish jerky. Oh yeah called snook that's actually pretty good once you chew it up enough that it starts to soften yeah um i mean there's there's a lot of good food in africa um but the people are amazing and generally some of the you know friendliest people i've ever been around yeah um but that's where the photography itch came sure um mountain gorillas and oh really you climbed into the yeah, a mountain gorilla times. reserves. Yeah, a couple of times. Wow, beautiful, beautiful animals. Um, and and just the just the pressure that they're under. It's just like yeah, you actually, can watch them blink out. Like yeah, but we're in the sixth major extinction right now. For them, things are looking up. Are uh, they? Rwanda. Uh, I was last time I was there was in 2019, and and the government is actually buying back land and restoring it to. You know, enhance because of the, the ecotourism. Yeah, they do. They do very well. I think there's exactly. a lot of incentive for sustainable economic, you know, prosperity if people do take that seriously. Because yeah. if there's just like bush meat, that's no. like comes and goes, and it's, no, it's there's nothing to it. Yeah, that's horrible. Um, yeah. Wow. So anyway, that's where it, that's where it was born. The photography itch and. Uh, for a long time, I was a, a slide film shooter. I actually didn't start shooting digital until, I want to say, 2016 when I was in Iceland. Yeah. Um, People just resisted. The, you know, there's like large plate photographers that I knew that still shoot mm-hmm. with those like four by five plates. Uh-huh. And because it's just like a whole different dimension. But the immediacy and the ease of digital, you can't. It's and it just seems like now that. The images are so dense, they're indistinguishable. Yeah, you get to see right then and there, you know, you got a good idea of what you have. But I used to love that not knowing with slide film. Yeah, for like, who knows how long. uh, But digital is incredible and it's always improving. And, um, you know, do you still keep some film for backup? I do. I, I have probably 30 rolls of. Fuji Velvia tucked away. Still got yeah. a couple film cameras. Uh, I'll probably never give it up entirely. Uh, yeah, because goodness knows technology. So it could be ephemeral. We yeah, don't know. you know, it know. might be back to the <laughs> the high uh, Middle Ages. Yeah, you know, one good neutron bomb could oh, take geez. out the grid. You yeah, know? that'll change things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's good to have the heavier bug out bag and uh, you know have your cellar full of uh, macaroni and yeah who knows <laughs> yeah so um all these exotic international trips how come you haven't written about any of them for us uh i don't oh i don't know i could uh, <laughs> yeah well we'll figure out a yeah. local angle yeah but that's uh, uh how, how you know this you have built your life around this these passion and these pursuits I, yeah. i'm just amazed everybody else just seems to get ground down how, how did you keep from getting uh you know uh, you know the myth of procrustes like the this uh this i forget what he was uh like it's some kind of a greek uh evil man that travelers would stay at his lodge and he'd cut them to fit onto his iron bed <laughs> and i just think that's the modern age procrustean everybody's got to get 
chopped down and to fit into this mold like Procustes with his uh, travelers making him fit that iron bed. And, and somehow you managed to escape that. Yeah. I don't, Why? Uh, I don't. Ooh, my, my dad, actually, I, I guess I would go back to my dad. He, he was a hardworking guy. He was in the stock, um, stock brokerage uh, business for uh, 30 plus years. And he ended up uh, being the Pacific regional manager for uh, Payne Weber. Whoa. Uh, so he was managing 30 offices from Alaska to Arizona. And he worked his butt and you, off. You saw that and was like, well, yeah, not for me so much. You know, it, yeah, but he also appreciated that. That, you know, he, he, when I graduated from school, he was like, all right, I am retired. Uh, and he retired young. He, he retired in his 50s. I think it was like 55, maybe. Um, he said, I have all my old accounts still. I can give them to you. And I remember that conversation uh, out on the little road where we lived on the beach between the marsh and the beach. And, yeah, and, and how like, old were you at that time? Uh, I was like 25 oh, okay. or six. So you were out, you were fully launched. Yeah. And he said, uh, you know, I, we, you know, you can do this. And I, and I was like, you know what? I appreciate it, but it's just not for me. And he never asked me again. He yeah. never. He was probably he, secretly gratified. Maybe I don't know. He never never came up again, and he was always supportive of what I did. And wow! So really and being nice. at that, I was still living at home. I was yeah. at the beach, so he was seeing everything that was going that I was doing. And as the writing and photography evolved, he was like, "You know, you're making money. You need to." save your money. And so I made a commitment, not only to myself, but to him as well. Yeah. Uh, I was, I would give him every check and I was just living off lifeguarding and guiding trips out the islands. And so now he's gone and I still do the same thing. I really still, I still tuck away all those checks I get from, you. <laughs> well, and, that's not uh, a lot of tucking uh, away goes on there. You know what? It adds up. And yeah. it's just, uh, it's amazing uh, how, it's, how it's grown. Wow, that's amazing. I there. could imagine that there's some kid here in this right now thinking, God, darn it, I want to do this. <laughs> that's how it happens, well, you know. There my, could be some, my situation was I do have a, I do have um, listeners, a chunk of them between like 13 or 18 or whatever the demographic is. So for them... You can do this. You can live a, a life of just pure passion and interest and science and exploration and fun. Yeah. Like, yeah, we've got a guy right here now who does that. My situation was very different, though. I, I mean, I had parents that, you know, didn't want to get rid of me. <laughs> really? <laughs> so to speak. Were you an only it. child? No, I have a oh. sister. I have oh. a younger sister. But uh, our house was, you know, convenient. It was, I was separate from the house and... And, uh, you know, no inhibitions, you know, I was coming and going all the time and, and, uh, they could see the progression and they were happy with it. And, uh, you know, they loved having me there. I loved being around them. And yeah, you know, we lived in a Not like my parents, place. my turned 18, my stuff was on the lawn. <laughs> yeah. That was um, like, you go into the, you either 
go into the service or you hit the road. Uh, like, that was it, man. Yeah. Well, I was gone a lot, but, uh, man, it was always great to go back home. Well, tell me about the pro surfing circuit, because that was like a heyday back in those 80s and yeah, 90s, right? Wasn't that like uh, a, a, not a golden age? I hate when people say that, yeah. but it was like high. Uh, I got to see a, a neat yeah. era of surfing as a group, yeah. at least in, you know, competitively uh, in the 80s. And uh, that was, you know, that was amazing. I wasn't, you know, I was good enough to make the national team. I, I tried, you know, the pro tour for a year and I, I realized I wasn't I wasn't going to make a living from this for one thing, but I wasn't good enough yeah. either. But it also, but, you know, that, that traveling experience, you know, helped me become a, a traveler and, you know, figure things out and, and whatnot. It was a good, it was definitely a good education. Um, yeah. Even though competitively, I, you know, I, I didn't measure up, but uh, it, was a, it was a great way to grow up uh, surfing and serving with your friends. And I didn't get that. Could you try again? Competing, <laughs> competing against your friends. Um, sure, because you probably form bonds on the road, yeah. and it's yeah. just like, yeah, it was awesome, yeah. awesome stuff. You know, just got to surf in Australia and South Africa. Did you uh, read uh, William Finnegan's uh, Barbarian Days? Uh, a long time ago, I think. Yeah, well, it came out like I don't know, five years ago or something, uh, something like that. But yeah, he talks so glowingly about Australia, especially, you know, um, but just. Surfing around the world. I don't know how I don't know how Australia is now, surfing wise. I mean, I I was there in the mid '80s, yeah, uh, when I surfed there, and you know, there was no one around where we were surfing West Australia and oh really uh, like in Perth in that yeah, area or yeah. Broome up in the northwest corner. Yeah, we, were, we were out of Perth. Yeah, um, it was incredible. It was like it was wild. Well, that's because there's nothing. Until Africa, like it's the biggest wide open stretch of ocean or something. Yeah. Some crazy thing. Perth is the most isolated metropolis on the planet. Yeah, I don't know. It's don't crazy because it's, it's very, just like I mean, wide it's, open. Yeah, it's very remote. <laughs> yeah. But you know, and I, I see pictures of Jeffrey's Bay in South Africa now, and I'm just like, ugh. When I was there with the national team, there was nothing there really. There was a yeah. few bed and breakfasts. On the beach, there was a small surf shop, a small post office, and then there was nothing. And now it's just rows of condominiums. And, and then the and all the the uh, the lineup is just packed of people. It's packed. Yeah, definitely. There's a crowd control problem out there, and yeah, um, you know, it's an amazing wave. It's one of but the did you waves. surf in Iceland? I did not. Because I've heard people that do. They do. Yeah, it's there, and it's supposed to be pretty good because yeah. uh, it's. Yeah, well, you're not fighting anyone for no. the lineup there for sure. No, it's cold. I did some paddling there, I did some kayaking there. Yeah. Um, but it is, for that, it's beautiful. I have not been to Iceland. I want to go so bad. Salmon fishing. It's all fishing for me. Uh, when I look at the globe, I think, oh, yeah, that'd be great. You know, the Atlantic salmon or the uh, the sea run browns and, I mean, all that. That's what beautiful. I think. Yeah, yeah. it's a beautiful country, beautiful island. Yeah. It is epic. And just think about all the hot springs. It's oh, really yeah. a big part of it for me. I love hot springs. And although the one here in Ohio, we can't, they've closed that down. The one that, there's a couple that you can find if you're willing to hike. I'm not going to tell you where they are unless you're very, very nice to me. <laughs> but uh, 
you know, the problem with hot hot springs, just like good surf spots, is once word gets out, yeah. they're going to be blown out. Yeah. 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 So back to California. You got your book out now. This isn't your first book, though. That is my first book. Really? What did I think you did uh, earlier? No. Hmm. But uh, where? Well, where can we find it? Uh, I'm going to post it up in the notes too. So don't worry if you miss anything. In Ohio, it's it's at the Ohio Valley Museum. Yeah. And Poppy's uh, art and craft right over here. And then Meg's. Uh, She might have. A couple. Circana has, uh, they've been uh, good with my book. Yeah, Misty Um, and Michelle. Yeah. And then uh, in Santa Barbara, it's at Chaucer's and the Book Den and uh, uh, upstairs at Pierre Lafon's and the Tecalote Bookstore. Uh, And then uh, the Wildling Museum and uh, uh, Solvang and uh, the Natural History Museum in Santa Barbara. a couple of bookstores up on the Central Coast, Coles Books and Morro Bay, and Volumes of Pleasure and Los Osos, and then a couple of outposts like uh, the Cuyama Buckhorn. Oh yeah, awesome! Because uh, that's like a whole lifestyle uh, thing yeah. you got going out there. Yeah, this book is perfect be. for that. Yeah, yeah. the Pistachio. Uh, yeah, Santa Barbara Pistachio yeah. Company. Yeah, they got it. Um, and then the Visitor Center out in the Creasel Plain has it. Yeah, well, this should be like their official. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, Tour guide. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how well it's done out there just because of the pandemic and everything. And they're only open seasonally from, you know, December to the 1st of May. So uh, I'm not exactly sure how that's gone out there. Uh, but uh, the book has moved well. It, it's won a couple of awards. Already? And, I think it, you just came out with it just a couple months ago, didn't you? Uh, the book? No, the book's a year old. Oh, my goodness gracious, how time flies. <laughs> it's flown. Yeah, wow. it's gone quick. Wow, that that's quite an accomplishment. I'm really impressed. All the beautiful photography, and how many hours of just sitting around waiting for those hours. these shots, these hero shots of uh, these like pronghorns on the cover. I'm fascinated by pronghorns because they're just like a Pleistocene remnant. Oh, they're man. like some remnant population from the Ice Age. Fast, too. Fastest land mammal in North 55 America. Fifty-five miles an hour. They can hold that speed longer than a cheetah can. Yeah, cheetahs go re- rely on the burst of speed. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> and they uh, they're quite delicious too. I understand. I've Although I guess you can't hunt them around here. No. But the idea that there is a, even a population in you know so close to Ojai like that, I just find that staggering. Mm-hmm. I just don't think about this being. I always think of like you know the high plains, right. Yeah, but they were in the central plains of getting mm-hmm. the San Joaquin Valley and yeah. that, right? That's yeah. hence that's why we have this this population here. What is the what is the herd size now? Do you know? It's tough on pronghorn. They're very specific eaters. They and you know, they need to be down on the floor of the Creso Plain. A lot of people don't realize that Creso Plain National Monument actually has two mountain ranges and, and the plains. Yeah, actually the Temblors in and the backside of the coastal range. Yeah, the Caliente uh, is to the west and the Temblors to the east. Yeah. Uh, so, unlike the elk, the elk are that's one of the fastest growing herds in California. Is the herds out there on the Creso Plain? And why is that? Because it seems like it's been tough, tough go over the past ten years yeah, of drought more, and stuff. They're more they move around. Yeah, they move around more. They they they're more diversified eaters. So uh, there's always food out there for them where the pronghorn need, you know, a certain vegetation down on the plain. 
and that's tough. It gets hot out there. Yeah. And so there's not there's less than a hundred of them out there on the planet. Has there ever been more? I think it's always you know it's always been around that number, but I think yeah. right now it's down in the fifties or sixties. Oh man. Hate to see them go. They're so emblematic of a certain kind of yeah. wild. Yeah. 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 There's nothing like them yeah, anywhere else uh, where we live or, you know, in the vicinity, the region. Yeah, I just can't. I'm always staggered by how close this amazingly diverse place is to just, you know, basic coastal California. Yeah. And here is this this remnant ecosystem that used to cover like a third of the state or something. Now it's down to just like a quarter million yeah. acres. Yeah. It's something. So what what other places, I mean, blank spots in, in your personal map are you looking to fill in over? What trips are you thinking about taking? And uh, Well, I'm... That's all right. It's 4733. Yeah. It's part of the charm of this podcast. I reckon so. I should have known better. Um, I'm actually going to do a backpack trip from Carp to the Carrizo Plain. Uh, so that's, you know, we had all this rain and I've just been watching it all the time, the weather, because you, uh, you need rain out there. Yeah. Uh, you need water. And uh, so up the Franklin Trail, over the spine of the yeah. up Murrieta Divide. Uh, no, it'll go. I'll go drop into Mono. And then uh, from there, uh, figure out a route. You know, it, I think it got talked to a couple of people, but, uh, you know, the, you look at the map and the, and the routes are there, but they might not be there. They're on the map, but they might yeah, not they be might there. Yeah, they might have been washed out over the past few years. And who's doing the trail maintenance in there anyway? The Forest Service cut all their trail budgets. Yeah, it's, it's Los Padres Forest Association. Yeah, the uh, volunteers. And, yeah, the volunteers are where that, all, all that hard work goes. Um, so, uh, you know, there's going to be trail that's overgrown. There's going to be trail that's burned out. There's going to be trail that's washed away. So there might be a lot of bushwhacking going on. could out. be. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. And that's got to be quite a few miles. It's got to be like 60, 70, 80 miles. Uh, it's going to be more like 100 to 125. 125 miles. A bushwhacking. I uh, won't be bushwhacking the whole way, but uh, there well, How much are you, Tom, what's your budget, time budget on this? Uh, it's going to be like a week to eight days. Wow, days. that sounds like you're going to have to average like 12 miles a day or something. Yeah. I've done a couple of other crossings and you know, would do by myself, would do like 20 miles a day. Yeah. Um, I did one 22-mile backpack and from, from uh, Mineral King up and over to go to this this lake uh, that was famous for golden trout and the Department of Fish and Game, my buddy tipped me off that they were going to poison out those fish because they weren't exactly that strain that belongs in that drainage uh -huh. and restock. So I had to hike up from like 6,500 feet to 10,500, back down to six and then back up to 10,5 or whatever. That was the roughest day right, I've ever rough. had. Yeah. I could barely move the next day. I had my dogs with me too, which is really, really stupid. <laughs> but they ate so much fish because we had no limits. They were going to kill those fish off any with right. rope. No, and I was helping them and writing about it. It was a story. But, oh, my God, that was the best backpacking trip I've ever been on. 
really amazing. Yeah. I just love being out there and just the crackle of the fire and just beyond the firelight, you can just, the stars are just it's like a blanket. Yeah. There's just no light pollution out yeah. there. I like sleeping next to the water. Um, yeah, that's like a, a lullaby. And when oh. I say the water, I like sleeping next to the ocean. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, some of the places around the islands, you can just get up on a little cobbled terrace and, and you know, stay away enough from the tide. And uh, just that lapping yeah. on the cobble, that's really soothing. most soothing sound. Yeah, yeah. to me, yeah. Yeah. Now, do you ever forage while you're out there, mussels and... No, spear fishing. I'm not or a, no, I've never been a fisherman, and some of the guides bug me about that. But uh, I've, I don't know. I, I don't know. I guess over time, I just, I've been in the ocean my whole life. You know, as a surfer, a paddler, a lifeguard, I just want to do. I think more land-based stuff, and that's kind of where the photography fell in too. Was, yeah. Um, you know, but because I, I shoot a lot of photos from my kayak. Um, so, you know, being on land is, uh, I like being in the mountains and, you know, in the back country when I can get there and, uh, places like the Carrizo Plain. And so uh, I haven't really gone below water much, uh, other than just swimming. Uh, I do some swims out of the islands or, uh, uh, not so much here on the beach anymore. A little bit of a white shark. <laughs> issue. Yeah. Uh, it's like just even knowing that yeah. there's a gosh. I saw oh, wasn't there some drone footage of uh, some no, white shark following a yeah. following a guy on his paddleboard? Yeah. I saw three this last summer working off the tower. Whoa. Right inside the swim. You mean you saw them from your yeah. vantage point? Oh yeah. And what are, are these young sharks? Mostly. Yeah. And what are they doing? Just looking for new territory? Uh there's a, there's a food source, at least in Carpentaria. Oh, they think it's this, they think it's people are race. seals. Uh, no, it, well, that's what you know happens. That's what they think they're saying. Maybe uh, and they'll come in for a taste test. But we have a we have a out of the Carpentaria marsh. We have a nursery for leopard sharks, bat rays, stingrays, and halibut. So um, over time, uh, you know these young great whites that you know seasonally stay close to the coast um or that's that's their food source yeah it's their banquet so um they're around that's for sure yeah um so people keep that in mind yeah there's some big <clears throat> fish out there though yeah well that's the that's why i love to one of the reasons i love this area is because like the channel islands is such a great fishery oh incredible out there. Yeah, the, the calicos and the, so much the, life. the black sea bass and the white sea bass and there's like all kinds of great fishing. Yeah. Yellowtail, I've never caught a yellowtail. That's next on my list. I've seen them caught. They're like yeah. holding on to an electric wire. Yeah. Yeah, that's really something. But my best experience coming from the Channel Islands was three blue whales surfaced and checking us out. And the captain was explaining how they hadn't been hunted and 70 or 80 years, so these whales now don't have the fear that no, they, they could go 2,000 feet down in like 10 seconds. Yeah, they've uh, made an incredible comeback, you know, especially humpbacks and grays, yeah. blues. Um, but lately, um, and these aren't whales really, killer whales are dolphins, but yeah. there's been a lot of uh, a lot of orca activity out here in the San Oh, Lawrence really? Channel. I didn't know that. Yeah, very recent. Uh, 
lots of different pods. This is generally out of their range, isn't it? Uh, well, no, the transient pods move oh, okay. around quite a bit uh, up and down the coast. Um, you know, they're always moving, looking for food, but uh, there's been a lot of sightings of them, some great behavior and uh, close encounters with them from the boats. And um, we've been seeing some mating. We've been seeing uh, not an albino orca, but a, a, an orca that's... Uh, Melon and challenged. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 experiencing something called leucism, mm. and it's a, just a natural loss of pigment. So you're not seeing any black on the orca; it's just white. Wow! Uh, it seems like he would really stick out, though. And it does. Make it easier for harder for him to hunt and easier that's, for him to be you're, spotted. You're correct. So that's the worry, <clears throat> but it also has the protection of the pod, and so we were watching this white. Uh, orca and its name is Frosty <laughs> and uh, he's just hugging his mom he's just swimming right next to his mom staying on her on her left flank and staying really close well it must be spooky to see a white whale move through a white yeah, orca was, move through it was amazing uh, there's been very few documented sightings of uh, of white orca in the world yeah um, you know, it's, it's incredible to see something like that and yeah and just seeing you know these pods of orca in general is just amazing because we don't see them all the time it's it's fleeting yeah i've seen them like nine to ten times in 25 years out here you know there's just you never know when they're going to pop up but yeah as we get into the gray whale migration more and more you know southbound and northbound they tend to kind of hug that migration they like the calves yeah now, this is mostly because of the rich uh, feeding grounds. Is that why that's... That? Uh, yeah. Uh, the Santa Barbara Channel is one of the best places in the world for seeing, you know, whales and dolphins, seals and sea lions. Oh, I saw birds. from up on the Mesa, I saw, I don't know how many, I, w- I want to say thousands, but I didn't count them, migration of dolphins. And they were a different kind of dolphin. They looked a little smaller. They're probably common dolphin. Common dolphin. Just, Somebody common, said called that spin just, and spinners or something. No, 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 they're common dolphin and they're seen, you know, in all the oceans. Yeah. Basically. Uh, so, yeah. They look they smaller are, than our typical dolphins. They are. They're small, uh, but they are a great indicator of how healthy the channel is because there's yeah. about 20 to 25,000 of them in the channel. And yeah, well, so it could have been foods. thousands that I saw moving through. They say, you know, what you see on the surface, there's typically seven to 10 below each one. Whoa. So whatever you're seeing on the surface, there's a lot more below. And they're just, you know, pushing that bait ball of fish and, and uh, hunting and and uh, looking for food. So um, seeing a lot of them is a, is a good thing. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, um, that's one of the reasons why I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. It's just talking to you. It makes me realize how amazing this place where we've chosen to live. It's just one of the most amazingly diverse and beautiful places on earth. It really is. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. And, and thanks for uh, having me. And having, having you in our pages is always welcome. Yeah, I appreciate it. All right, Chuck. Um, that'll do. Anything right. else? No, no. I think that's it. Thanks All a right. lot. Thanks, thanks a lot, Brad. Just thinking out loud. Chuck's life of hewing true to his passion and purpose is very inspiring. 
I truly believe that the next generation of naturalists and outdoorsmen and conservationists are not created from some blank slate, but from exposure to and mentoring with people such as Chuck. So if you're that person who is inspired by the natural world around them, you'd do worse than to reach out to Chuck and maybe he can show you the ropes. Well, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.